0: You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear, nuclear energy. energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar panels, wind turbines.
1: I really feel like this transition is already unstoppable. Wind and solar are the winners. They're clean, they're affordable, and they're scalable. We need to just elevate the
0: role of the decentralized distributed generation solutions. For August 4th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents, meetings, and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. William Hutchison Murray. Welcome to the New Improved Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. We're back from our brief break, and we're fired up to resume regular show production with several exciting updates. We're also eager to share with you some of the new things we've been working on, with more to follow in the coming months. So before we get to the interview, here are some important announcements. First, as I mentioned before the break, I am no longer working on the show as a side project. Thanks to the support of our loyal subscribers, the Energy Transition Show is now my full-time job. It has taken six years of effort to fulfill my dream of having a fully self-sustaining podcast. The passage I just recited has been one of my guiding lights for several decades through multiple career changes. but never has it felt more accurate than now. I have no doubt that Providence has been in our favor on this journey, and I'm eager to see how much better we can make our show now that I can give it my complete attention and energy. I've also adopted a new mobile lifestyle in order to be able to take the show on the road and explore the innumerable energy transition stories waiting to be told all over the world. So if you have an idea about an example of energy transition happening near you that you'd like to see us feature on the show, just drop me an email at chris at and tell me all about it. The more detailed your pitch is, the more likely it is that I'll take you up on it. Second, as you just heard, we have an updated music theme which was once again created by the very talented Mike Sugar. And you'll note that where the original standard intro used a variety of historical quotes, our new intros will use excerpts from our previous shows. A lot of you have been asking for a new intro, and I've been wanting to create one for years, so I hope you all will enjoy our new theme and intros. Third, we are very excited to announce an entirely new feature on our platform, our very own job board. The energy transition is really picking up momentum and I am regularly contacted by employers as well as job seekers looking for help. But I am no recruiter, so we have created the Energy Transition Show Job Board to help our subscribers find and share good jobs that are more focused on energy transition than those typically found on general interest job boards. Our job board is free to use for our annual subscribers, including those who use a group or site license. So if you're an employer who wants access to our exclusive, self-selected membership of energy transition enthusiasts, or you're an annual subscriber who's interested in finding a new job working in the energy transition, just log into our website website and click on the job board button on our top navigation bar. And if you are not yet a member of the Energy Transition Show, or if you have a monthly subscription, consider this yet another reason to join our annual subscribers and experience the full benefits of membership. We are launching the job board as a very simple beta product that is free to use for our annual subscribers. Depending on how our members respond to it, we'll consider adding more features. But for now, it's a free beta stage product that we are offering on an as-is basis, and we make no warranties or representations about it, nor will we be offering support for it. It's just another cool benefit of your annual membership. Fourth, it's been a while since we reminded our listeners of the full suite of features available on our website to our members, so if you haven't logged into our website recently, here's what you've been missing. Interactive transcripts of all interviews and the full text of our news items. Search functions you can use to find, filter, and sort our shows by topics and guests. Several ways to share the show with your friends and colleagues, including our share links feature, which lets you give a free month to a friend, and annual gift subscriptions. You can find those options on the Manage Subscription page on the website. Student and Group Discounts. We have always offered half-price annual subscriptions to students. We also offer group subscriptions so that employees and students of academic institutions, corporations, and large organizations can enjoy our complete catalog of full shows. Just ask your university or corporate librarian to request a demo. You can find all of our subscription options and discounts by clicking on the Become a Member button on our website. Fifth, we'd like to extend a warm welcome to our latest bulk and site licensees. So to all of our new listeners at the U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, at BP, Microsoft, and Google welcome. We're so pleased to have you join our ever-growing roster of dozens of site and bulk licensees, including Carnegie Mellon University, Stanford University, University of Virginia, Copenhagen Business School, RMI, Energy Web Foundation, University of Freiburg, King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Center, National Renewable Energy Lab, Australian Renewable Energy Agency, Stellenbosch University, Central European University, and the Payne Institute at the College. Colorado School of Mines, among others. Thank you so much for supporting our show. I know that was a lot of administrative stuff to get through, but we thought this was the perfect time to remind our members, as well as our listeners who are still just listening to the Free Abridged Shows, about the full suite of features and benefits available to our annual subscribers. And stay tuned, because we have even more exciting new stuff simmering away on the back burner, which we plan to announce before the end of the year. All right, with all that out of the way, let's go to the topic of today's show. For many years now, critics and skeptics of the energy transition have insisted that it will be necessarily limited by various factors. Some emphasize the problems of producing key minerals used in things like solar panels, wind turbines, and electric vehicles, suggesting that the availability of these minerals will act as a brake on the progress of the transition. Others assert that the new modes of producing and using energy will always cost too much, and therefore that incumbent technologies will always have an advantage in the market. Still others insist that transition can only work in the rich countries of the developed world, while emerging economies will have to follow the same paths as developed countries did, starting with the fossil fuels and gradually working their way toward renewables, or starting with used internal combustion engine vehicles and only later adopting EVs. And then there are those who question whether renewable resources even exist in sufficient quantities to displace the existing energy system, or whether there is enough land to cite the new requisite wind and solar capacity. In this show, we explain why there are no fundamental limits to the energy transition, as these critics and skeptics assert. Quite the opposite, in fact. The safest assumption now is that renewables will continue to grow exponentially, and we should be thinking about the implications of that, rather than asking how the current system can struggle to persist. To help me explore these questions, I invited back to the show Kingsmill Bond of the Carbon Tracker Clean Energy Think Tank, based in London. He last joined us in episode 108, where we considered opposing viewpoints about whether the transition will be rapid or gradual. Today we review several recent reports that he and his colleagues at Carbon Tracker have produced, which specifically address these questions, and which show how incredibly large our resources of renewable energy and key minerals really are, as well as why emerging economies are more likely to leapfrog over the older, conventional energy systems, and go straight for the new technologies of the transition. A number of you have written to me expressing interest in these questions, so I hope this show will help to answer them. Then, in the news segment, we'll ask why Britain is planning to repeat the mistakes the U.S. made in allowing advanced cost recovery for a new nuclear plant. We'll note the end of a long-running effort to build a coal export terminal in Washington State. We'll salute the end of an even longer-running effort to build the Keystone XL pipeline to export oil from Alberta. We'll detail how Texas's leadership continues to back the power generators that have been the least reliable and strained its grid to the breaking point. And we'll note the fading fortunes of the natural gas sector. And now our conversation with Kingsmill Bond, recorded July 2nd, 2021. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Kingsmill, to the Energy Transition Show. Great. Thank you for having me, Chris. Well, it's great to have you back, especially because you've been looking into some of the alleged constraints on energy transition that have recently been highlighted in the media, such as the availability of key minerals, the availability of sites with good renewable resources, and the inertia of fossil fuel incumbents in emerging markets. And it will not surprise you to hear that many of our listeners have raised questions about those topics as well. So I wanted to have you back on the show to share your perspective on those questions. And I think I'd like to start with the question about minerals and the so-called rare earth metals that are used in things like wind turbines and solar panels and electric vehicles. We discussed the complex issues related to the supply chain for these minerals back in episode 99 with Morgan Bazillion, but you've been looking at the global endowment and the general availability of them. And back in May, you wrote a piece for Carbon Tracker in which you said that you thought IEA's recent piece on the subject was really too pessimistic. So why don't we start there? Could you share your perspective on the mineral availability question with our listeners?
1: What did IEA say that you think was too pessimistic and how does your outlook differ? Great, thanks Chris. So look, the first point is that the IEA report made a very accurate observation up front and they said, you know, I quote, there is no shortage of minerals. And this of course is what USGS and many others have been saying for years. I think what we're concerned about is they then take a very pessimistic turn and there are lots of charts looking at the additional minerals required by the green system. And they quote, for example, 210 kilograms is required for an electric vehicle of critical minerals and versus 35 for an ICE. And a megawatt of solar requires six and a half tons versus three tons for a coal plant. And at the press conference after the publication, there was lots of discussion about this type of issue. And the point is that it's just analytically bogus because... What they're doing is they're looking at the stock, not the flows. It's a very simple error, actually. Mm. And the flows are two or three orders of magnitude bigger than the stock. So it's just wrong to look at these numbers. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So as I just mentioned, you might need 200 kilograms, but less more minerals for an electric vehicle. But that electric vehicle uses 15,000 kilograms less oil over its lifetime. <laughs> and it's the same story in electricity. So if you need three tons extra of minerals to make the solar panel versus the coal plant, what you're forgetting is that you're needing 150 grams of mineral equivalent per megawatt hour for solar versus 350 kilograms per megawatt hour of coal. Right. So it's, uh, it's just a really dumb analysis, actually. <laughs> Well,
0: I mean, I take your point. I have had a similar critique in that it's fine and well to say when we're just talking about metals or minerals, you know, this uses this much, this uses that much. But you do have to put that in some context, right? You have to put it into context of all the other things that get used and, of course, all the other damages that result, including carbon dioxide. So let's just put all this stuff in the right context, I think, is one of the key points that I'd like to make, and so I'm glad you focused in on that.
1: Yeah, another example I've heard a few times, and it might be worth sharing with your listeners, is people often say solar's really bad for the environment because it uses so much water. You scrub those solar panels, and can you imagine, Kingsville, it uses 20 liters of water for every megawatt hour of solar, and that sounds, that sounds like a lot of water. And then you stand back for a second, and you think, well, well, actually, when you look at the numbers, Coal uses 2000 liters <laughs> per megawatt hour to produce electricity. So yeah, there's a lot of very fake analysis knocking around out there. And part of the job that we do at Carbon Tracker is to, to expose it. And you know, this is not just for the sake of doing that. There is a much wider, more interesting story within this energy transition.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, what about just the question of pure availability? I mean, do you, see any important constraints that we need to worry about in terms of just the pure availability of critical materials?
1: So a lot of people have done good work on this. USGS has done it, um, KPMG has done it, Energy Transitions Commission has done it. They all end up with exactly the same conclusion, which is we have dozens or even hundreds of times as much minerals in the Earth's crust as current demand. So there's no question that we have the stuff where the issues lie, as always, is that you don't have the stuff immediately. And therefore, if you get very rapid demand growth, then you're gonna have short-term mismatches between supply and demand, as with all commodities. And that's the story. So you're gonna have a mismatch of supply and demand and the short-term drives up price, higher price drives up supply, more supply drives down price. I mean, it's economics 101. And I think if you talk to mineral specialists in the area, that's what they will tell you, that this kind of uh, scaremongering that the IEA has been indulging in is just simply inappropriate. There's a lot of things that you can use to measure the difference between fossil fuels and renewables, and they all give you roughly the same answer. So you can look at cost, you can look at the carbon footprint, and you can look at weight. And in broad terms, the fossil fuel system is simply going to be more expensive, heavier and dirtier than renewable one, which I guess stands to reason. We looked at weight because it's very intuitive. You can see exactly how much petrol you're using versus the size of the battery. And it just becomes a very easy way to demonstrate, as I just did, the gap between the two. So why is weight a good proxy for environmental impact though? Well, the heavier the stuff, the more you need. And you might well say, well, this particular product has a nastier impact on the environment. But if you're using 200 times more of the other product, it totally stands to reason that the first product can't possibly be worse unless there's something really weird going on. So it's a framing device. That's interesting.
0: Well, what about the question of lithium reserves in particular? Because I know a lot of folks are looking at that, especially as we see the growth of EVs starting to pick up. Is there any concern about the availability of lithium reserves to execute our transition,
1: especially with respect to electric vehicles? Right. So on lithium, I mean, here are the numbers actually from the IA themselves. I and mean, the IA say that we have 170 times as much lithium reserves as annual demand. Furthermore, our reserves have increased by 42% over the last eight years as the prospect of higher prices and rising demand have drawn out new investment. So of course, if you were to take 2040 annual lithium demand today, then we would struggle to do that, but it's just gonna be a long, slow process of build and there's plenty of stuff out there.
0: Hmm. So you don't see any particular concerns about being able to continue to you know, dig up and process these lithium reserves and
1: meet whatever the demand is we're not trying to be glib here. It's not easy. And there are negative consequences which need to be managed and all the rest of it. But the question that's being asked is, is this a hard barrier to the energy transition? Is this an insurmountable barrier which stops it from happening? And the answer to that one is absolutely unequivocally no. Hmm. And I think that's the point that we would make in many other areas. And the point actually is that The reality is the other way around. The fossil fuel system has reached the limits to growth and the renewable system is a very long way away from them.
0: Mm. Now, that's an interesting point. You know, in your piece that we're talking about here right now, you also made the important point that as transition proceeds, we'll need less of these materials than the current estimates suggest, because those estimates are based on the demand for materials and minerals today. And this is a problem that I see over and over again in various projections related to the energy transition. You know, I think everybody understands that, as with any technology, as we make more of something over time, we figure out how to reduce manufacturing costs. In what is sometimes called a learning curve or an experience curve. And this is why computers keep getting more powerful and cheaper at the same time. And of course, the same is true for solar modules. I mean, basically, a solar module is functionally almost the same thing as a computer chip. You know, the solar modules we have today use a lot less material to produce the same amount of energy that a solar panel did 15 years ago. Wind turbines, EVs, and everything else are subject to these same experience curves. And in fact, At the Battery Day event in September 2020, Tesla showed off its latest advances in battery technology, including how to get more range out of batteries while reducing the need for key minerals like lithium and cobalt and nickel. In fact, they suggested that in a future generation of their batteries, they'll need no cobalt at all. But it seems that analysts are reluctant to try to model these reductions in material demands because it's, I don't know, seen as too speculative or because there's just not enough empirical data on which to base such a projection. So is everyone just overestimating the future needs for these materials because of a failure of imagination?
1: (laughs) Very nicely put. I mean... Yes, is the, is the one line, one word answer to your observation. I mean, look, there's a couple of points to make here. It's not just in the solar industry that incumbent modelers failed to anticipate improvements. It's a very common weakness in all modeling. Yeah. And as you say, forecasters don't want to be profits. Therefore, they're quite conservative about what they can see. And the problem is, to state the obvious, there is no empirical data on the future. Right. (laughs) People often say, where's the empirical data? Well, there is no empirical data on the future because it's the future. (laughs) But, you know, we do know from people like Doyne Farmer at Oxford that technology learning curves are very sticky. We do know that policy instruments are going to get tightened up over time in order to oblige countries to meet with the aspirations of their leaders. So simply there's no excuse to fail to model those. that that framework into your modeling, but people don't. And as a result of that, you do get this very wide gap between reality and what's being modeled. And I come from the financial services sector. And as you know, the point for us is it's better to be approximately right than precisely wrong. And that's exactly why you need some imagination, as you say. But in fact, you don't need very much imagination. I mean, (laughs) just put a growth rate into Excel. Right. And let Excel do the maths for you, and you'll see what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, this is something that just continues to bedevil me. And it's especially obvious when you look back at projections that were made like 10 years ago. There's... Certainly, those reports exist. You can go back and look them up and say, well, what were they saying 10 years ago about how much solar we could deploy in 2020? How much silicon would be required or silver or mercury or any of the other components of the solar module? And then you can compare that to the actual empirical data because it's now the past and not the future. And you can see that they were wildly wrong. And you can ask yourself, well, why were they wildly wrong? And the answer is blindingly obvious. It's because they did not take into account any, Sort of a
1: learning curve. Yeah, you know, just to step back again for a second, put yourself a century ago, um, you're sitting around in 1920, and somebody says to you, where well, incidentally UK electricity demand at that stage was four terawatt hours a year, and somebody says to you, within 100 years, the global population is going to increase fourfold, global energy demand is going to increase 15fold, and We're going to be using twenty seven thousand terawatt hours being used by seven thousand million people all over the world of electricity. I mean, you know, it would have seemed a big ask a century ago. And yet, of course, that's what's happened. And that's why I find these kind of attempts to model business as usual into the next 30 or 40 years just laughable because that's just obviously not what is going to happen.
0: Yeah. And to continue with your example, if you had done the math 100 years ago to say, well, what would that require? Almost certainly the answer would have been, well, it would require more timber than exists on Earth and it would require some absurd volume of coal because that's how we were producing electricity 100 years ago, right? They would not have taken into account all the other ways that we produce electricity today.
1: And so that's why we are not now in a world of absurd numbers. Yeah. Well, you have the famous and possibly apocryphal Times article of, I think, 1870, or allegedly 1870, about how by 1930, the streets of London would be six foot deep in horse manure, right. <laughs> because they too could extrapolate back in those days. <laughs> There's plenty of examples, actually, of incumbent thinkers and professors and so on and so forth dismissing new technology. And the car was dismissed as a fad and electricity was dismissed as irrelevant. And as you know, computers were initially dismissed, as not being terribly likely to to be significant. So we all need to be incredibly careful about modeling the future. And I think rely upon some simple observations, such as those being made by Doyne Farmer about learning curves, and make the assumption that humans will do what we're best at, which is exploiting cheap local energy sources. And for me, that's the load of what I think is likely to happen.
0: Well, you know, there's another problematic aspect of repeating the story about mineral limitations on the energy transition. And that is that this narrative about these constraints and also particularly about the environmental cost of their extraction is really a very one-sided argument. And in effect, it serves the purposes of the fossil fuel incumbents. Now, I don't have the evidence to show that they have in fact promulgated this narrative. I suspect that they do, but I don't have that evidence. But there's no doubt that it serves their aims. And the press has been carrying the water for the fossil fuel industry by promoting this narrative relentlessly for the past several years but the status quo alternative you know again putting this into context to energy transition means continuing to accept the environmental damage of fossil fuel production and carbon emissions, which is something we bear on a daily basis. But it receives very little press at all. we got oil spills. We've got people being sickened because they live near oil refineries. We've got the environmental damage from things like coal ash ponds collapsing and contaminating waterways and just all the litany of other kinds of damage that we get from the way we do things today, in addition to all the carbon emissions. But No one who writes these stories about, say, the worst cases in cobalt production ever seems to put those costs and damages of transition solutions in their proper context, which is the damage from fossil fuel extraction that happens every day. So why do you think that is? Like, are all these analysts and writers simply
1: incapable of painting a complete picture or what? Well, Chris, as you know, it's not necessarily a one-sided issue. Look, I think there are three reasons that people are failing to put this stuff in context I and mean, the first is the is, is as the bible pointed out if you have a flock of 100 sheep and you lose one you're more concerned about the lost sheep than the 99 others so people notice change much more than they notice continuity is the point hmm. um the second i tend to agree with a slightly more sinister argument in the fossil fuel industry and its many acolytes as michael mann and, and many others have noted is constantly spreading disinformation I and mean, i have a couple of friends sort of earthwell friends, perhaps, who were involved in doing this. And I just say to them, why do you do that? I mean, you must be clever enough to realise that what you're saying is fundamentally untrue. Why do you do that? Just please stop. The third point to be made about this issue is possibly a bit more interesting, which is there is this notion that the status quo is good and any changes to the status quo are bad. And you see that constantly in discussions about the energy transition, and we cannot change because the current world we live in is so perfect. And this is a very dangerous idea. First of all, because, as you pointed out, business as usual is just not an option at all. We have to change. Not even the fossil fuel industry wants to get to four degrees. So it's like being in a car rolling down a hill towards a cliff edge. Keeping going is not an option, guys. You have to do something, you know, steer left or steer right or brake, but you've got to change one way or another. And then secondly, I think we all have to recognise that the current system, as you say, is by no means a perfect one. I mean, according to Vora, you've got 8 million people a year dying as a result of the pollution from fossil fuels. And when we had no alternative, I guess society was prepared to tolerate that. But now that there are alternatives, that issue is much more significant. And then secondly, as Oxfam has been pointing out, the richest 1% use two and a half times as much energy as the bottom 50%. and the losers from the current fossil fuel system are hugely skewed towards the poor and the minorities and the countries of the global south. So the system we currently have is certainly not a perfect one. Well, just out of
0: curiosity, what sort of a defence do your erstwhile friends mount when you ask them that question? They need to pay the rent. (laughs) And... Which is so tedious. I mean, it's banal. Like, oh, my God, really?
1: Yeah. And then the other argument is made. Well, it's not our fault. We're only a very small part of the picture. You know, we do what we do and it's not our fault and it's not our problem. And as a user of fossil fuels myself, um, like I guess all of us, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that point. But I think the fundamental point is you've got to search for superior solutions and stop giving us fake solutions. So I use electricity and when i could buy electricity that was renewable i did and um, that's i believe the way we need to shift yeah well you know just to
0: sort of complete this point about putting things in context, since energy transition is, first and foremost, about reducing carbon emissions, as well as other pollutants like SOx and NOx, shouldn't we be looking at the relative costs and benefits of transition in that light? For example, if we calculate the emissions that result from deploying renewables, shouldn't we then also calculate the emissions that will result from just continuing to operate the existing fossil-fueled infrastructure to obtain the same amount of energy for the same services? So
1: I'm actually, Chris, going to take issue with you on the very first point, if I may. Um, So the energy transition was certainly sparked by reducing carbon emissions. But I would suggest that actually now the core driver, fortunately, is technology. And sorry, I'm not making this point for the sake of intellectual sparring, but because actually it's really significant. If this is a technology transition, people simply have to change to survive. If it's a question of reducing your emissions to fit with an externally mandated level, you can do an awful lot of greenwashing to get there. And I think that's an important distinction to be made. You can't greenwash your way out of reality. But anyway, to address your second point, of course the emissions of the renewable system are considerably lower. I mean, I think it's about 50 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour for solar versus about a thousand grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour of coal. And we have to realize everything has an impact, but when the impact of the current system is one or two orders of magnitude higher than that of the alternative, it just becomes a really analytically feeble argument to suggest that you should stick with the current system. Well, so for example, there is an excellent World Bank piece on this. They've done the math and they figured out that moving to two degrees shock involves an extra six gigatons of CO2 from building and operating renewable technologies, which is a lot and it's the kind of thing that Matt Ridley would get very upset about. However, it reduces emissions from fossil fuel generation by over 350 gigatons, <laughs> so 60 times more. Um, there's a lot of that type of analysis out there, you just have to find it.
0: Exactly, and this is what just makes me mental about the whole thing, right? I just keep coming across these stories where they'll they'll say, energy transition is gonna require an extra six gigatons of CO2. And I'm like, yeah, and? <laughs> Would you like to finish that sentence? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, let's talk about the sheer availability of these respective resources. For example, another argument that defenders of the status quo like to make against renewables is that they occupy more land than fossil fuel and nuclear generators do. But having looked more closely at those claims, I quickly realized that this is a classic case of using different boundaries for analysis in order to produce the (laughs) result you want. And this is a deep, dark subject unto itself. And listeners who haven't already may want to go back and revisit our discussion about life cycle assessment with Garvin Heath from episode 59, where we talked about this boundary problem. So what are your thoughts about those constraints, either the land availability or just the sheer availability of sites with commercially viable wind and solar resources? Is energy transition really feasible on those counts? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research, resources, and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to reporting in the Financial Times, the British government plans to unveil legislation in the autumn that would allow a utility building a nuclear plant in England to recover the costs of building it while the plant is still under construction. Further, it would allow the utility to earn a regulated rate of return on those costs long before the plant actually generates any electricity. This regulatory mechanism, called Regulated Asset Base in the U.K., and known as Advanced Cost Recovery here in the U.S., is the reason why utilities and developers were able to fleece U.S. consumers to the tune of more than $40 billion for costs incurred in the construction of the Vogel and V.C. Summer nuclear plants and the Kemper Clean Coal plant, as we discussed in Episode 62. The V.C. Summer and Kemper plants were abandoned before generating a single kilowatt hour of electricity, but the Vogel plant debacle continues on. On June eighth, the project monitor told Georgia regulators that the plant startup date would be pushed back by another seven to nine months or more, and that the plant's cost overruns were likely to increase by another two billion dollars. The plant was originally scheduled to open in 2016, and the total cost of the two planned Vogel reactors so far is over 27 billion dollars, more than double the initial estimates approved by state regulators in 2008. Given the very long and still ongoing history of those three plants, including the long trail of corruption and lies that led to their undoing, and given what should be painfully obvious lessons about how the advanced cost recovery mechanism not only fails to penalize but actually encourages continued cost and project schedule overruns, it's unfathomable to me why the UK government would be considering such a move now. If France's state-backed utility, EDF, who is building the 20 billion pound nuclear power plant, is unwilling to shoulder all the construction costs and risks for building the plant, as it has said, then the project should simply be cancelled. Especially considering that the government has guaranteed EDF the absurdly high and inflation-protected electricity price of £92.50 per megawatt-hour, a price that is approximately four times what it costs today to generate power using solar and wind and U.K. consumers should be holding the feet of their Treasury officials to the fire for supporting the move, which is virtually guaranteed to drive those absurdly high costs even higher. Mm -hmm. Item 2. As we reported in the news of Episode 149, the state of Wyoming, which gets a large share of its revenues from coal production, has been desperately looking for ways to force other states to continue buying its coal rather than accept the reality that other states... Mm -hmm. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melzheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music. And you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.